0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: So we've been working our way through the book of Acts. We've now come to Acts chapter 13 and a significant turning point in God's global great plan of redemption. I've frequently pointed out how Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, sets us on orders to make Jesus an issue in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. I talk about that all the time. And by this point in the book, all three of those areas have finally been touched upon with the, the conversion of Cornelius and the planting of the church. In so let me read Acts, chapter 13, and read verses 1 to 12. It's the beginning of the missionary movement in the history of the church and in the book of Acts. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them out. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elemus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The end of chapter 12 records how Barnabas and Saul, the two key leaders in that church in Antioch, who had gone to Jerusalem to take the money there to those in need, how they finished that mission there and returned back to Antioch, taking with them Mark and resumed their pastoral role there in the church. So chapter 12 ends and chapter 13 begins. And this church at Antioch, though it was only a couple years old, had, had become a relatively solid church, a pretty deep church. There are five named leaders there. Perhaps there are more. There are five men who undertook teaching and, and prophesying in the church. Teaching would be explaining the scriptures applying them to life, helping people to live in them and to live them out. And prophesying would be revealing messages from heaven, as we saw already happen with Agabus, and probably what happens in verse 2. God speaking from heaven through prophets. Before we move on to verse 2, though, we should note a little bit about the diversity of this group of leadership. It's a remarkably interesting group. You have Barnabas, who's a Jew from Cyprus. You have Simeon, a black man. That's what Niger means. You have Lucius, who's from North Africa, near modern-day Libya, probably. You have Menaean, who was another Jew who had grown up in the household of Herod. The text says that he was kind of like buddies with Herod growing up. It's not the Herod who was just uh, dealt with in chapter 12, but the Herod who tried Jesus and beheaded John the Baptist. Menaean was his boyhood friend. And now he's a leader in the church in Antioch. And Saul, a- another Jew from Tarsus. So, these guys are from all over the place. They're from different religious and cultural backgrounds. And together, they lead and prophesy and teach in this church in Antioch. And one day, in the midst of worshiping and fasting, God spoke to them. Specifically, it says that the Holy Spirit spoke. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a force. He is a He, He speaks. And he says some things. He says, set aside these two particular guys for the work to which I have called them. Indicating that he's already been at work in the past, in their lives, calling them to something, and now's the time. Pick them, send them out. To do what? Well, that's not real clear. It doesn't say there. All we know is from looking back in the book of Acts that when Jesus had saved Paul, he had told him, I'm saving you for you, for the purpose of you being a witness to the Gentiles. But... There's a lot of Gentiles. whole world's full of Gentiles. What was he supposed to do? Well, it doesn't say. And we don't know anything about Barnabas either. So it seems likely that when the Spirit miraculously intervened and called them out, that then they proceeded to undertake some relatively common ways of discerning God's will. Thinking and planning and praying. Perhaps that's what the additional praying and fasting was about, to make sure, has God called them? Yes. Where should they go? Let's make a plan here. Finally, they conclude, yes, here's what we're going to do. They lay hands on them and send them out. So, being sent out by the Spirit, notice how verses 3 and 4 present the same event from two different sides. Verse 3, who sent these uh, missionaries out? The church did. Verse 4, who sent the missionaries out? The Spirit did. Both of them, both engaged, both active, the Spirit and the church, Releasing them from pastoral ministry, sending them into missions. Send them out, they go down to the port and they sail to Barnabas' home island of Cyprus, where they go to the synagogues and preach in synagogues from one end of the island all the way to the other, establishing a pattern that you'll see throughout the whole rest of the book of Acts. They go to synagogues first, surely they'll find Jews there, and they will find Gentiles who are religious who can then connect them to other Gentiles, family, and friends. It's their regular pattern. Go to the synagogue first, spread out into the Gentile communities that are surrounding them. And they do that time after time after time, all through the whole island until they come to the other end, Paphos, the capital city. And when they get there, they found that word of their ministry had preceded them, and the Roman proconsul, who's kind of like the provincial governor, he's the ruler of the island, he wanted to see them. Now he has with him, it says, probably in attendance in his court, he has this man who is a false prophet, a Jewish false prophet, whose name is, ironically, Bar-Jesus. Bar means son of. Jesus would have been the very common name Yeshua, which roughly translates salvation. So this man's name, ironically, is son of salvation. And he's a false prophet. And he's there in the court influencing Sergius. But Sergius is also a thinker. He's an intelligent man. He's heard about this gospel and he wants to hear it himself. And so he summons these missionaries and says, tell me, lay out your case in front of me. And so they preach to him, which stirs the false prophet to action. And he opposes Paul. Surely in word... He's called a deceiver. He's surely saying and spreading lies about the gospel. Probably also he opposes him in the spiritual realm. He's twice called a magician, as if to emphasize that. This is probably kind of a, sort of a a spooky situation. He's accessing supernatural power to encounter Paul here. And so Paul sees that his action is standing in Sergius' way, and he lays into him. Verse 9, Paul filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a critical observation because Paul's angry here, but it is specifically telling us that this is not human sinful anger. We might get angry sometimes if people oppose what we're saying. This is God. This is anger from God at the false prophet, just like Jesus. Think of Jesus in Matthew 23. Where he pronounces his seven woes upon the Pharisees and scribes who stand in the way of the people that Jesus is trying to preach to. He says, Woe to you. Not only, Pharisees, do you not enter into the kingdom of God, but you forbid them from coming too. You lock up the door for them. You blind guides, whitewashed tombs. Jesus is hot under the collar with these guys in Matthew 23. He concludes the chapter by saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, meaning the scribes, the leaders, how I long to gather your children, the people, but you would not let me. You stood in the way, therefore I destroy your house. That's Jesus saying that. God, angry with people who stand in the way of other people hearing about the truth. And right in that vein, Paul looks at Bar Jesus, looks him right in the eye and says, you son of the devil. That's strong. Actually, what he first says is, liar, deceiver, son of the devil. He's really clear. Verse 10 is strong, but it does not settle the issue. Verse 11 settles the issue pronounces a judgment against him. You are a blind guide standing in the way of people, leading them astray. Therefore, the hand of the Lord will blind you, and you will need guides. And it happens on the spot. And the legs are cut out from underneath of this opposition, and the only thing left standing is the word of God. And Sergius sees it, And believes, astonished at the miracle? No. Look, astonished at the teaching. That's really good news. We've seen the Bible before where people are wowed by power but don't actually even hear or embrace the message. He's actually properly seen the sign and what the sign is pointing to, the teaching, and has embraced the teaching and is astonished by it. Sergius is saved. That's our passage. The beginning of Paul's missionary endeavors. A section of Scripture that challenges us, here's the point, it challenges us to trust God the Spirit as He spreads the gospel among the nations. So we should take out of this, trust God the Spirit as He spreads the gospel among the nations. He's doing it. God's taking the lead. But it is not in a way that enables us to go sit on the couch and do nothing. Obviously, Paul and Barnabas are very active here. We have to trust him and obey him and follow him and and take risks, act. But it is clearly the Spirit who is over and through and in all of this here. Trust God the Spirit as he carries the gospel into the nations. I'm going to make three observations, three observations Along those lines from this passage, it should encourage us here this morning. We begin with, God the Spirit is working to extend the Word throughout the nations. Say that again. God the Spirit is working to extend, to spread, to press out the borders, to extend the Word throughout all the nations. God the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, come in power for a lot of different reasons, but the one that's being emphasized here is for the purpose of extending the word. Notice how he's emphasized here. He's mentioned three times explicitly, verses 2, 4, and 9. At each point, he's directly overseeing activity that spreads the gospel or deliberately overseeing the words that clear the path for the gospel to be heard. He's doing it. Verse 2, he interjects himself in the church's worship service with a direct command, set apart these guys. And actually the language, as we saw, is indicating that he had already been at work to prepare those guys, to call them out. Now he says, the church, now you send them out. So the church sends them, but it's the Spirit who sent them. Verse 4, he sends them, he gives them direction, takes them to the island, and he goes with them actually. There's a difference between sending them off and actually going with them. The Spirit is still with them when they find themselves in the Roman proconsul's presence. Paul's filled with the Spirit when he speaks. That's the explicit evidence of the Spirit's work. He's working towards the end of taking the gospel message that is in the church in Antioch and taking it to this island in the Mediterranean. Before the Spirit works, the word is not known in that island. The Spirit works, And now the word is known everywhere on that island. The Spirit is working to extend the message, extend the word to, in this case, Cyprus and to all the nations. But to be a little more specific, when he is extending, when Barnabas and Paul are proclaiming the word of God, as it says twice here or down at the end, the the teaching of the Lord, what is that? It is not a message about proper behavior, or ethics, or morality, or how you better yourself. It is not just random teaching from the Bible, like open up a passage and talk about this, or or emphasize this. It is not just the Word. It's something specific. Here and in the whole book of Acts, the Word of God is used to to mean the Word about Christ. The message about Jesus. Who He is, what He's done. It's It's God's Word about God the Word. It's the Lord's teaching about the Lord. God who became flesh who came to earth and intervened in life. This is the Lord of all things, glorious in his might, creator of everything, who remarkably did not count it necessary to be regarded as this glorious Lord, but came down humble and took on a body to be a servant, suffering himself even to be killed by his subjects. That's what is astonishing to this Roman ruler. Rulers do not do that. This Roman ruler understands authority and rule. People don't do that. No Caesar ever said, I'm going to become a humble subject and let my people kill me. Never. It's shocking. He's stunned by it. But they're saying to him, Come and behold this Lord. Come and look at Him, the ruler of the cosmos, crucified for sin. Crucified so that you, a sinner, can know Him, can be reckoned clean. Come and embrace this God who became man to settle accounts of His people, not by judgment, but by grace and forgiveness. This word from God is that peace can be made between God and man, between God and you. It is possible only at the cross. Foolishness to Gentiles like this man. Shocking. What are you talking about? He offers peace, he says. He offers peace to those who repent and turn to him and turn away from themselves. It's astonishing, it is glorious, it is stunning. Is it astonishing and glorious and stunning to you? Or have you heard that way too many times to care anymore? Which is it? We should see something like this and say, this message is astonishing. And when you sit there and look at yourself and say, but it isn't to me, the problem is not in the message. The problem lies elsewhere. Don't let this become rusty to you. You have no right to have any dealing with God, but you do. You're a Christian. Isn't that amazing? You do. Not because you earned it. Not because you did anything, but because He came to earth. The Word of God became flesh. That's amazing. He humbled Himself. Amazing. Isn't it? It should be. Behold this. Look at the glory of His justice that requires every single sin to be paid for and be amazed at His glorious grace that says, I will pay for it myself if you'll trust me. That's astonishing. Astonishing. It's the get-out-of-jail-free card that we could never conceive of. And here it's preached to this man for the first time, and he regards it properly as amazing. That's the the word being extended into his presence by the Spirit, brought right to him, shocking him. You can be saved apart from works. That's what the Spirit is preaching in all of the nations. Preaching right here, right now. We should praise God for that message and for the Spirit's commitment to carry that message. For the Spirit's commitment to at one point have carried that message to you. I stop and I think about not just the message, but the fact that the Spirit is involved in doing this, extending this gospel to this island and to all of the nations. And I'm very, very thankful for that. Have you stopped and thought about? There are a lot of people on the planet. A lot. I get weak knee just thinking about talking to my neighbors or my neighborhood, my family members. There are six billion other people out there. How in the world could I take the gospel to them, or you, or us, take the gospel to all six billion people. How could we plan that? How could we contrive methods to do that? Apart from the Spirit, never happen. But it's a glorious message that needs to go for the honor of God and for the good of people. But it's never going to happen if the Spirit doesn't take it. Thank God none of us are called to take it apart from Him. Because apart from him, we could not do it. With him, though, we can do all things. The Spirit is engaged in spreading the gospel. I often say things like, We are under orders, make Jesus an issue everywhere. Or, We've been commanded to, to take him as light to the nations. Or, You shall be my witnesses from 1 8. Or, throw in the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. And it's really easy to hear all that and think, man, I've got a lot of work to do. And that is so overwhelming. Think of all the people in the world and all the different religions, most of whom don't want anything to do with Christianity as it stands. It's really easy to to kind of slide into that and to think, I've got a lot of work to do, I better get cracking or or we better get cracking. And in a sense, it is our job. Notice the church here is active. They pray, they think, they fast, they plan, they send them out. And Barnabas and Saul are themselves incredibly active. They walk the whole island, enduring and suffering and preaching time after time after time. They are engaged and they are paying costs, but it is the Spirit who is driving this thing. Both together, it is God who is at work in them to will and to work, not just their sanctification, but His purpose of missions. God is fulfilling the Great Commission. He is not up in heaven hoping that it works out somehow. Jesus did not say, I will build my church and I'm really optimistic that it might prevail against the gates of hell. He didn't say that. I will build my church and the gates of hell will fail before it. The Great Commission is God's work. It is the Holy Spirit who is extending the gospel to the nations. Through us, yes. I gotta always say that because it is not. The Spirit's work is not of a nature, this is not a fatalistic environment where it doesn't matter anything that we do, it's irrelevant, God does it. That's not true. I have to always emphasize that we must be active, but it is Him who is doing it. Those things together. Philosophically, those things work out. It's a long story. Hold both of them. Acts 1.8 is just as much a statement of fact as it is a command. You shall be my witnesses. It's a command. Be witnesses. It's also a statement of fact. You're going to be my witnesses because I will not let this thing fail. God is at work. He's extending the word about the cross, and we need to keep that in mind in our own circles as we are doing evangelism, as we are engaged in reaching out to people. We need to keep in mind that it is God, God the Spirit who is working to extend this. I don't need to scheme or, or contrive. I need to think. But I don't need to make it happen. God's doing it. I want to listen and follow. need to keep that in mind on our own evangelism level. But what's unique about this passage is, as I said already, it's more than evangelism. It's about missions. This is the launch of the worldwide missions movement. And right here at the front door, on on the first step, is the Spirit making it happen. He is committed to taking the gospel to all of the nations. He calls out missionaries. He sends them to certain countries at certain times, to certain people even. The Spirit is at work to extend the Word of God. To all the nations. The second observation flows right out of that because while he is at work to extend the word, we have to then ask the question, well, what happens when it gets there? What happens? Here's the second observation. God the Spirit is working to exalt the word of God and cast down its opposers. So he extends but God the Spirit is also working to exalt the Word of God, to exalt the message about Christ, and to show it to be just as astonishing as it actually is. And when necessary, he will cast down those who are opposing and are clouding and blocking it. When he wants to shine it, he casts them down so as to reveal it. This is seen in the confrontation that occurs in verse 8 and following between Paul and, and his sorcerer buddy there. The Spirit has carried this word into the man's presence. And what happens? Well, the sorcerer rises up and opposes Christ with all his might. And really, he's creating a struggle, not just between him and Paul. He's creating a struggle in Sergius' mind. I hear the gospel. Is it true? I understand some of what he's saying, but what is it? Is it actually able to conquer darkness like he says? Is it actually able to change hearts like he says? Is it true that this Jesus lives like he says? Is it or not? That's amazing. Can it be? And the Spirit sees this is the roadblock. I want to save that man. This is the roadblock. I will clear it out so as to lift up the word in his mind and he will see. Wow, yes it is. This gospel, it belongs here, not over here somewhere, over there somewhere. Nice for you, but not really good for me. The Spirit is going to act to lift up the word in front of his eyes. Pronounces the judgment. Proconsul sees it and is astonished and believes. The Spirit-driven action lifts up the word and removes the barrier. And he still does that sort of thing today. But if you think for just a second, and it doesn't take more than a second, if you think for just a second, you realize he doesn't always remove those who oppose the gospel. At least not right away. In fact, I know lots of people who oppose the gospel, lots of people who would be false prophets, if you will, who live to a ripe old age and die healthy, wealthy, and wise. What's the deal? I really wish that he would remove them because they seem to be such hindrances and to be standing in the way of the spread of the gospel. Why won't he remove them? I would love a world in which truth is known clearly everywhere by all. I would love heaven right now. But he's not doing that yet. Why not? There's a reason there's a reason that God does not immediately remove all opposers right now. Let me show that reason through one significant example. If God was of a mind to immediately cast down all opposers, as soon as they begin to oppose them, he cast them down. If God was of a mind to do that, then he would have cast down Satan Immediately. Before Genesis chapter 3. Before the fall into sin. It wouldn't have happened. There would be no fall, no sin, which would have been tremendously, almost incomprehensibly good. No fall, no sin, no pain, no suffering, no death, no loss, no fear. The human experience would have been so different. So wonderful. And, here's the kicker, the human experience without Satan, without the fall, without sin, would have been so wonderful and so impoverished. No Satan, no fall, no sin means no cross. Which means no... Absolutely no ability to comprehend the full grandeur of the glory of God. To see Him in all of His stunning beauty. No ability to comprehend His condescending humility. His sacrificing love. No ability to see His his profound holiness and pure justice. And righteous fury against sin and marvelous mercy and glorious grace. None of that seen without sin and fall and cross. God is supremely and ultimately revealed to us in the incarnation, in the crucifixion, and in the resurrection, which does not happen if he stamps out Satan immediately. Now as I say that, Many of us sit here with no comprehension at all as to why that would be a better thing. I'll take the no sin, thank you. The no sin, the no fear, the no pain, the no loss. I want that. And if that's where your mind runs, you're trapped in something. Your mind is fully wrapped up and engaged in only this worldly thinking and you do not realize that you were made for God and your heart will be forever restless until you have Him in His fullness and you can't see Him in His fullness without the reality of the cross. May God deliver us and convince us of that. that We were made for Him and we will be restless until we drink Him in like water. And He colors and over, overflows everything that we see. And He fills our minds and our hearts. We need that. And that is shown to us and made possible for us to experience even now and one day forever because of the cross. We don't actually want to go back to the Garden of Eden. We want the new Jerusalem. It's better because we see more of Christ there. So there's a reason that he does not cast down all opposers immediately. And that reason is, interestingly, the same reason that he does cast down opposers. Because his ultimate, here's the reason, because his ultimate purpose is to reveal himself to us, to give us what our hearts need and we're made for. And sometimes in his wisdom he knows I endure this opposer and that will serve to exalt the Word of God, the Word made flesh. And then when he sees that this opposer stands in the way, he will cast him down so as to exalt the Word, the Word made flesh. His primary purpose, to exalt the Word, to exalt Christ in just the right ways, at just the right times, to feed your soul not just to make a peaceful life for you here on earth, but to feed your soul with what your soul was made for. Him in his fullness. What's happening here in our passage is that he looks and he sees Sergius, I want to save him. This man is in the way. I will clear him out. And he does. Sergius is astonished at the gospel. He sees the truth of it when seeing the power. That's what the Spirit is doing here, and He still does that. What does it mean for us? Let me try to focus it in a little bit. What it means is that we need to realize that God the Spirit is committed to exalting the Word. He's committed to lifting up the Word, to making it clear, so that you see it to be as astonishing as it is. And sometimes that means He will leave opposers to drive you to him. And sometimes it means he will clear them away so as to show off the word. Here, he clears them away. He's committed to exalting the word. He can and he will do that, sometimes by dismissing, by overcoming people or groups of people or religious institutions, cultures that hold people in their grips. He will clear them away in the right time, in the right way. And sometimes he will let them endure. The point is, he's trying to exalt the word, and in his wisdom he knows which is best. So we trust him. We pray, we say, Lord, remove this barrier, please. Open this man's eyes, please. Lift up the word in front of him, please. But we trust that ultimately he knows best. Which takes me to the third point. The final observation which i've already been saying in a couple of different ways i'm going to be extremely brief here i just want to say it separately so that it comes through clearly. to realize to understand that god the spirit is the one extending the word and god the spirit is committed to exalting the word sometimes by casting down opposers realize that god the spirit is a work in those two ways what does that mean for us what should we do well primarily especially it means we should trust him god the spirit's doing this trust god the spirit to do this trust him trust god to be at work that's the third observation don't take it all on yourself in your own power don't think it's meant to be by me by my hands by my wisdom by my might trust him And at the same time, trusting him who has called you to be a witness. The Spirit will be a witness. You will be a witness, John 15. Trusting him means you go. You listen and you go. Trusting him for the results. These guys could have preached from one end of Cyprus to another and seen thousands of converts or none. It's in God's hands. But they go trustingly, obediently. He's going to extend the word through me. And he will exalt the word in people's eyes, in their hearts to show it to be what it is. So I preach it, trusting him to do it. This might be a little simplistic, but it's kind of like an Easter egg hunt. Ever been to an Easter egg hunt? If I were to say, go out and hunt for some Easter eggs on the church property here. You might do it, or you might not. You'd be less inclined to do it if I said, I have no idea if there are any eggs out there or not, but go hunt. Eventually, you're going to start looking around, and the the struggle in your mind is going to be, this is pointless. I don't see any Easter eggs out here. I'd like some, but there aren't any here. And so there's going to be frustration building, a hopelessness, a desire to quit. Maybe there will be a temptation to modify the goal. I'm going to start collecting pine cones. They're oblong. They look kind of like eggs or or anything plastic. Close. That's a goal you can achieve. Well, I stand in here and tell you to go out and hunt Easter eggs. But that's not how we do Easter egg hunts. How we do Easter egg hunts, and we just did one this last Easter, is... The adults go with the kids and steer them. There are a few that are hidden right in the middle of the sidewalk that the kids don't need any steering on. But then there are a few that are a little more cleverly hidden. You say, over here a little bit. Look down there. See anything red? We don't bend over and actually put it in their basket, then that's us hunting Easter eggs. But they're not going to find that without us. So we steer them and we guide them and we keep telling them, there's a few more out here, keep looking. Look over in a side yard, look over there underneath the car, steering and guiding. And so it happens because of us. They are the ones who put feet and hands to it and put them in the basket. It's simplistic, but we're engaged in a cosmic Easter egg hunt. The Spirit goes with us, assuring us there are eggs out there. I'm calling people. Keep looking. They're everywhere. Not just over here, over here too. They're everywhere. Look high, look low. They're everywhere. Keep looking. And he steers as we listen. He collects the eggs, we collect the eggs. Trust God. Trust God. God the Spirit, as He spreads the gospel to all of the nations. Trust Him. Let me pray. Father, would You give us grace to trust You and Your work through the Spirit? We acknowledge that You have set before the church an immense task preach the gospel in all the nations and to persuade human beings that it's true and astonishing and worthy of their trust. Lord, we cannot do any of that by ourselves. But we give you great thanks that we are not called to do it by ourselves. You're doing it. And so, Father, we pray, give us faith, faith that obeys, faith that looks to you for power and wisdom faith that steps out leaving the results in your hands to give us grace to trust you as you spread the gospel in all the nations we pray this for Christ's glory in all the nations and in our lives amen
0: thank you for listening to this message by pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City Utah